Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. A little bonus episode here. Uh, This was brought about by the fact that we've had two really great classes on what does the Book of Mormon teach with video that's available on YouTube. Uh, We'll give that link here in the show notes. You can go to Restore Gospel Podcast on YouTube and watch those classes. But Corey's got so much information, and um, due to the limited time for those classes, we thought, why don't we just get together and recap what we did and uh, present some additional information that, um, that maybe we didn't get to and just have some conversation about it. Uh, like I said, we hope you enjoy. hope this adds to the classes. Corey, uh, yesterday's class, again, I was just uh, and I was just on the edge of my seat, even though we've been talking about some of this stuff for months. Um, we have a series here, What Does the Book of Mormon Teach? But that, seeing the visual and stuff, really opened up my mind and um, to some things. I know you didn't get through everything yesterday, but I was writing down some notes I wanted to address. Um, so I'm going to ask you, you brought up the pronouns yesterday in the Book of Mormon. Well, first of all, let me read. I was looking at some Book of Mormon criticisms. for Through the years, the Book of Mormon has been criticized, as as you brought out in class, like this this dumb you know farm boy that didn't know how to speak English and... You know, even the Book of Mormon drifts from the Bible and doesn't even follow the proper language. And uh, and now we're seeing in these last days that actually the Bible didn't follow the proper language mm-hmm. of the Hebrews. And when you take a book that was written on plates in the nature of that language, put into the ground, come out of the ground and translated one time, it reflects the original um, ideas, Hebrew thought processes, poetry, way of speaking, way of recording language that now Hebrew scholars are coming to understand. And in their own books, people that aren't involved with the Restoration, that are not involved with Mormonism in any way, in their own words, in their own Hebrew Bibles, they are now putting language back to the original meaning. And we find that what? The Book of Mormon backs up that language and that the Bible was the one that has kind of lost some of that translation through the years. Yeah, that's such a good point in summary of it, Mike. It's like, it's exactly what it is. We're, we're finding that, <clears throat> you know, the the men who tried their best to translate books like the King James and stuff, you know, I'm going back a few hundred years, didn't um, always understand the nuance of Hebrew and the culture, and then when you look at people who have a better understanding of it now, of ancient Hebrew, and then you find these phrases in the Book of Mormon that, uh, like, they'll write in modern books now about the Hebrew language. Uh, For instance, the one point I think that came up in class yesterday was how there's this term, thick darkness, that appears in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but then in the moment where the destruction occurs in America. They say it was darkness that you could feel. And then you go back and just the nuance of the definition of thick darkness now isn't understood to be something that could be felt. But that term doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. So how would some farm boy have guessed that? Right. I uh, I was looking at, um, well, so this morning I just got on the computer early and I was looking at Book of Mormon criticisms because I knew that a lot of this stuff was uh, was used to denounce the Book of Mormon. Yeah. I want to read something from this is a Catholic website and they address the fullness of the gospel. Listen listen to this. Um, according to a standard Mormon theological work, Doctrine of Salvation, One finds by definition that the fullness of the gospel is meant all the ordinances and principles that pertain to the exaltation of the celestial kingdom. Now, that's that's a Mormon way of talking about it, the LDS. But listen to this point the Catholic, this this site makes, and it's making the same point that we've been making. It actually backs up what I think the essence of what we're teaching about the message of the Book of Mormon— It says, but if the Book of Mormon contains all the ordinances and principles that pertain to the gospel, why don't Mormonism's esoteric doctrines show up in it? 
The doctrine that God is nothing more than an exalted man with a body of flesh and bones appears nowhere in the Book of Mormon, nor does the doctrine of Jesus Christ being the spirit brother of Lucifer, nor do the doctrines that men can become gods and that God the Father has a God above him who has a God above him ad infinitum. That's written on the Catholic uh, by this Catholic website on criticisms. Don't the the critics sometimes do a great job of pointing out the flaws of Mormonism? Even, right. Even they're 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 better at seeing it than I think people in the Restoration. Now listen to this, and this is something that you touched on yesterday, and I want to talk more about these. I don't know what this word means. Heterodox heterodox teachings and many others like them appear nowhere in the Book of Mormon. In fact. Pivotal Mormon doctrines are flatly refuted by the Book of Mormon. Now, listen to this. For instance, the most pointed refutation of the Mormon doctrine that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are actually three separate gods is found in Alma 11, 28 through 31. Hmm. Now, Zizram said, is there more than one God? And Amulek answered, no. And Zizram said unto him again, how knowest these things? And he said, an angel hath made them known unto me. The Book of Mormon fails on three main counts. Okay, so uh, they're quoting the uh, Book of Mormon <laughs> to say that Mormon doctrine, that the Book of Mormon refutes <clears throat> the idea that there's three separate gods. Right. And I would add to the, you know to those teachings that um, that the Book of Mormon doesn't mention. And they said if this is if this is what you need for salvation. Then why doesn't the, if the Book of Mormon is the fullness, everything you need for salvation? Why are these things not in it? This Lucifer, Jesus, brothers, this uh, you know, gods upon gods upon gods, and I would add, and and infinite levels of heaven where you go, nowhere mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so they pick that up, and so we. That's I think that's <clears throat> kind of what you're getting at at some points in the class is that. Uh, the Book of Mormon actually brings out the fullness of the gospel, and that's why we're focusing on the message and not uh, all of the other stuff around it. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for bringing that up. You know, this. I think the problem in the restoration, collective restoration, including Mormons and RLDS and everyone, is that for some people, they felt they had to reconcile everything that was ever said or done by someone in a leadership position in the early days of the church. And honestly, uh, I know I'll offend people by this, but there were people who just wanted to commit adultery in the name of Jesus Christ and wanted to try to reconcile it with loopholes. And therefore, what we have is the fallout. And I'm just polygamy, for instance, there are People in the LDS church who still somehow feel like we're supposed to reconcile this as a celestial thing because someone, I won't mention his name, decided this had to be part of salvation. Well, what if that guy was flat out wrong? And and the whole problem is now you can't hold the Book of Mormon in one hand and these doctrines of men in the other hand and say they're equal. And so... That that's the biggest problem, I think, is, in, uh, and I'll pick on our friends in the Utah church because they can pick on us for other things, I suppose, but that uh, stop trying to reconcile these ideas of men because they said them. We, you've, you've taken this gospel that was given to us so we wouldn't stumble, and you've supplanted it with other ideas, and you're trying to make it all balance, and it won't. You know, it, it's time to wake up and say, these were men who were fallible, and even though they made sermons and had them written down and they got bound in books, it what didn't mean they were inspired. So, mm-hmm. and, and you can't compare the amount of wealth a church has or the, the number of people and say any of that is righteousness. You know, here's you get one prophet going up against 400 prophets of Baal, but which one had the truth with them, right? But no, that's a good point, Mike. Um, I think I, I, I just want to add the critics used to bother me because I thought, oh no, they're finding all these problems with us and how do we, you know, refute any of this stuff. But now I find out a lot of times the critics are giving us good information that we need to ask ourselves because it comes back to the things you said. The Book of Mormon's telling a straight story. I can't see them assail the Book of Mormon. And when they do, sometimes it's short sightedness. Mm-hmm. I, I found one guy just recently that went on and on about saying Children are born in sin, and look at this Book of Mormon, uh, how it's saying that children don't have sin. Well, I'm not going to get into that subject. I'll actually maybe bring that up as a class topic sometime because 
there are some people who I think the word doofus was coined because of them who who want to take this idea that somehow children are sinful and they'll take a verse out of context in the Bible, which wasn't interpreted correctly anyhow in, into the English, and they'll try to apply that to all humanity and say, you know, infants are are are, are um are sinful and nevertheless, I don't want to bog down on that, but yeah, I appreciate that, Mike. There's a there's a lot of good information there. So we we say we uh, the focus of this class is going to be the message, and I know um, you've set a foundation the last two weeks, and we haven't focused so much on the message, but we have. But but it's it's there's a purpose for the foundation, and that is um, that I think there's a depth and uh, an explanation of who God is contained um, contained in the very nature of the language of the Book of Mormon that we don't see in the Bible. One of those things, I was reading another site, and I don't have it pulled up right now this morning, but it's by uh, people that a lot of RLDS people would know that have left the church and wrote criticisms. They said the Bible um, is very uh, male-oriented, and they gave a ratio of how many times men are mentioned to women, and then they uh, looked at the Book of Mormon and said even, you know, the ratio is like even three times as much that women are hardly ever mentioned. Um, but we got into something yesterday, and I wanted to touch on that again, and, and I wrote down some questions in class about the meaning of the word God as found in the early writings and how God is actually from the very beginning described as male and female. And so to say that uh, and you brought out something yesterday that showed that that women were were strong and full of strength from the very basic writing and language of the followers of of God. So speak on that again, just a little bit about what you would say if someone said, "Oh, the Book of Mormon, you know, puts down women and doesn't give them any place in their relationship to heaven." Or yeah, yeah. Well, boy, those are great points. Um, the the first part of what you bring up. I think, too, we have to remember the Hebrew mind was different than the Western mind. And even at the point you just met, said, made about God having male and female qualities, in our Western minds, we're picturing, well, does that mean like he's, his body is part man and he's, he's got breasts like a woman? Or, you know, it's like, okay. That's not what it's meaning. It's meaning that he's got qualities that could be ascribed to, you know, maybe— the um, the justice that might come from a father, but the tenderness that might come from a mother, and that all those qualities were the things that the Hebrew saw. It wasn't like he's this, uh, to use the modern word, androgynous being that's kind of a half male, half female, and it's not that. But the qualities were what the Hebrew saw, that he was all of these things, even to the point where, as we pointed out in class, and this was the point of the class, to, to bring it back to the Book of Mormon where Nephi is writing and comparing a woman's ability to breastfeed her child to God's ability to nourish the children of men. And that was this beautiful parallel that could only be made by someone who understood that one of God's qualities to the Hebrew was El Shaddai. That was his name when they referred to him as the one who could nourish and, and meet every need through his nourishment. And, that, and that's crazy. And being a, a home health nurse now for children from the ages of preemie newborns to 18 years old, uh, I see a lot of <laughs> – never thought I'd do this in my career, but a lot of breastfeeding in the homes, sure. right? And um, I've never seen a father do that yet, but it's the mother that does that. Yeah. Cor- I, we don't have the ability to do that, to yeah. provide that kind of nourishment, that kind of life-sustaining uh, uh power to to a child and yet a mother uh, you know take away everything else in in around us in our environment that mother and that baby's going to survive as long as that mother produces milk and is able to produce milk it mm-hmm. needs nothing else other than the air that it breathes to mm-hmm. to survive so that is a female and and you said the word mercy is a is was understood as the female um Word in the Hebrew, right? Yeah, yeah. And in the whole Book of Mormon's mercy, it was a, it was a feminine, like they feminine, have feminine right. nouns and masculine nouns and feminine verbs and masculine verbs, right? We don't do that in, in English, which is one of the reasons why it, the, the translation is lost sometimes in the Bible, and it's better in the Book of Mormon because that came through in a divine translation, which sometimes they just didn't know the words to use. Right. Yeah. I want to get back to this 
to this gender thing, but I wanted to bring up, there's a scripture that you say, this just really, out of all the, this one stuck in my mind, okay, the, the scripture in the Book of Mormon that talks about the, the um, oh boy, the stars and the moon or the heavens and the earth and, and all that in, um, in them is, all that in them is, but it's, it talks about her glory and his, What what's that scripture and and those two uh, um, feminine, masculine. Yeah, this is one of the, this was one of the most profound things. And as we brought out in the class, in the Hebrew language, they require, or it sounds funny uh, in their language, that if you have a noun, something that you own, that you put the pronoun in front of it, like that is Mike's computer or his his desk or his chair, or his house, and that that with each pronoun, which with each noun, there's a pronoun in front of it to show who who owns it. Well, pronouns like in our language, if I said you know if I said hey that's Mike's computer, but I said it's her computer, that would sound wrong because you know Mike is a male and I put the wrong pronoun in front of it saying her computer when it's his right. Well, in the Hebrew, they understand that mercy is a feminine noun and mercy is come the the word adonai which is god in his mercy has roots in this feminine word mercy the word justice which is the opposite of mercy also comes from god but it's the masculine a masculine word in the hebrew and so if you're talking about a justice it would have to be a his if you're talking about a mercy it would have to be hers and in the book of mormon what you have is this term, and it's only found in the Book of Mormon one place, and it's found nowhere in the Bible where it describes a his or a her to these qualities of God that are masculine and feminine. And I'll, I'm going to read this where you come, it, it's in the Book of Alma, Alma 19, verse 106 in the RLDS. And thus they are restored unto his presence to be judged according to their works, according to the law and justice. For behold, justice exercises all his demands and also mercy claimeth all which is her own. And thus none but the truly penitent are saved. Now this justice and mercy are these attributes of God. Remember, Alma's just saying they're restored into his presence. So the the his we're talking about is Mm -hmm. God, the Father, right? But then they're saying justice is a his and mercy is a her. Well, that's exactly according to the Hebrew, the matching of the pronoun, his or her, with the masculine, male or female. You, You can't even find verses in the... Bible where mercy and justice come together other than one kind of like, oh, it's not even a real hard-hitting scripture in like Psalms. Now, I'm not saying the ideas aren't there of God's justice and mercy. I'm just saying where they're not just tightly confined within a verse like this, where it's defined is specifically. But to take it a notch farther, and you certainly don't find it where it's using the proper pronouns associating his and her. Who would ever call it her, his and her in that manner unless you knew the Hebrew? Mm-hmm. You know, that to me. So one of the things that comes back and, and um, uh, one of the sisters from church actually emailed me this after church last night. And I appreciated uh, the little dialogue we had about it because this um, idea of gender is very, very important that we understand that God gave gender to teach us. He, you know, it's this aspect of he made them male and female. And through that relationship of male and female, we learn about the qualities of God. The two come together as one in marriage. Well, well hang, the, on, hang on. I want to, before you go any farther, I got an article pulled up. Well, we can bring this in, but I wanted, because I wrote this down yesterday as well, as you were talking about these pronouns. Uh, and I'm I'm reading from USA Today, so I didn't pick a, conservative site. So, okay. If you can find one. The U.S. House members uh, change rules to affect the gender language. The first, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of an economic downturn, um, you know, rioting and and the country's been burning for, and the first thing Congress, you know, one of the first things they do when they meet with their new uh, parties in office is we got to look at this gender issue. Really, that's that's like that's the pressing issue of the day, right? So, 
the, it's funny because this is fact checking, trying to show that well, it's not as bad as it seems. It's only but but so I'm going to read what it admits that the House of Representatives is governed by a set of rules. They are specific to each Congress and passed at the start of the legislative session. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and House Rules Committee Chair. James McGovern unveiled the rules of the 117th Congress on January 1st with several changes to previous rules. One change was to, quote, honor all gender identities by changing pronouns and familial relationships in the House rules to be gender neutral, unquote. The rules were adopted with the passage of House Resolution 8 by a vote of 217 to 206 on January 4th. The language change has prompted backlash from conservatives, of course, uh, who claim that Democrats won't let you say gendered words like father and mother. Uh, So this goes on to say that father, mother, son, daughter, brother, and on and on. um, Well, actually, Facebook and Twitter haven't responded, but it says, so this is verifying this. It says, it is true that the rules of the 117th Congress include changes to gendered language, but they don't ban the terms from use in the House. The change only alters the text of standing rules to strike gender-specific language and replace it with gender-neutral language. Do you see So, well, yeah, you you can say what you want, but but what this applies to is we're going to change all the written pronouns, written rules to gender neutral. <laughs> well, that's not like a great gift, you know, we'll speak what you want, but the written recorded stuff is going to be gender neutral. Yep. Uh, so that's what our Congress did. And as you were talking yesterday about God uh, and and how much, um, well, <laughs> this sounds silly, how much thought, how much depth there is to God in explaining. And as we learn about uh, the very meaning of the word God from early on that he is revealing himself so that male, female become one. You, you talked about the wedding relationship. Um, male and female become one in their marriage to symbolize the church and the, the um, to symbolize Christ in the, in the church as the bridegroom and the bride. Um, and, and now in, in these words that are used in the early um, language showing us who God is, that there's gender issues that become one. This is, uh, as we continue to learn about him, Corey, this is many levels of depth. And so we talked a couple of weeks ago about this gender issue and how um, I said it just, it seems evil on a whole nother level, but I can't really, I can't put my finger on it, but it's not just about, well, we want to include everybody. That may be what these people are thinking and, and they may have, maybe it's coming from a good place to give them the, the, the best, to put them in the best light. Maybe they really don't want to make anybody feel uh, ostracized, but we know from a Christian standpoint that we're all going to be ostracized at some point if we don't get into harmony with who God is and what He requires of us. We're going to be cast out. That's yep. not a unChristian idea uh, to try to include everybody. <laughs> the kingdom of God is very exclusive. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's also inclusive in the fact that you submit to God. He He gives you mercy. He includes everybody. He, it says he comes to save all man that will, all mankind. This is a satanic idea. This is going against the very nature of God to do away with the whole idea that there's man and woman and, and how we conceptualize God. And I, I saw yesterday in your class that as you were pointing some of these things out, I thought that this idea that Congress did, that's a satanic idea. That's Satan stirring up the hearts of men to do evil, and they don't even probably realize it. Yeah, amen. It's, it's hard to articulate this because uh, there, there's, there's so much we don't understand about the, the reasons for gender. But I, I've, here's one, of, and I'm going to read this from actually the King James. It might be the same in the inspired version, but I was... I was just reading this yesterday out of the Hebrew Bible, and I wanted to see if it read the same way, and it pretty much does. Genesis one twenty seven, just from the King James. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. That That's a cool little chiasm <laughs> to pick that up, right? Yeah. yeah, everyone here. But then it finishes, and it says, male and female created he them. Now, not going down the path of teaching a class on parallelism right here, 
this is a typical thing where they'll say like A and B, God created man in his image and the image of God created him. He goes A and B and then B and A, and then they make the statement C. And so he's taking God created man in his image. In fact, he male and female created he them in, in, in the same image. So where this starts is that because God had these attributes, um, he, he, he took everything of him and he split some in one direction and some in another, right? The love, the mercy, the justice, the, the things that are attributed to him is his El Shaddai, which is feminine, the justice, which is masculine, all these qualities he put in humans. But then he said, but I'm dividing you into two, two groups. There's many, many reasons for it that the two become one. It's just like heaven and earth, which you started uh, talking about earlier, to the Hebrews were viewed as one, one creation. It wasn't, well, there's a heaven and there's an earth and the heavens was a masculine and the earth was a feminine because the two need to be joined together. This is this great theme of mankind being separated from God uh, that has to come back together again. And, and you see this, the, the beauty of this comes all through the idea of gender and gender has to be unique and specific. And so this idea that he made male and female, but, but remember the church is separated from God right now, right? Because of our sin. And that this church was born out of Adam's side as the woman, right? And it was through his death, right? That she has life. So Adam simulated death. You see how all these things build on top of each other. And it gets, it, it gets so deep in a way where, where we're, but we realize that the common thread through all this is that gender needed to be unique, and, and it was created for God's purpose and that we're not supposed to blur those lines because if we do, for one, we, we lose the meaning and understanding of it all. And, and secondly, you know, you talk about, well, is Congress doing it out of compassion or are they being, you know, Satan's emissaries and just not telling us, I think Satan has forever used humanity as the useful idiots to mock God, right, you know, right. and that's what's going on here. I mean, I don't, I think here's the thing, and this is what I was sharing with the sister who emailed me yesterday, we have to remember that um, the battle has always been between Satan and God. Satan is trying to use us to mock God and, and to give the lessons that he's given us to teach and to turn them around, to pervert them and, and put them back God's face and be ignorant in the process. That's how Satan, that's what gives Satan, you know, warm fuzzies and gives him a, a good day. Man, I had a good day. I took all these people and I perverted their ideas and I made them mock God in the process and they're none the better, right? Mm -hmm. There's a place in the, I can't remember if it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, where it talks about, hey, the, the kids went and gathered flour and the men made a fire and the women made cakes and offered them to the queen of heaven. Okay, so the, the point of this is that the, the families thought they were doing this good. And, and, and the point is God is chastising the people for missing the point. God wasn't the queen of heaven. God was the king of heaven. But here in their stupidity they were they but they but they were so happy about it it was like this little family affair hey you get some wood i'm gonna get the flour mom's gonna make a cake let's offer this to god and and this is like she our god the queen right this is like cain and abel you know this is like cain didn't get it the sacrifice was supposed to be a blood offering to show the understanding of the atonement mm -hmm. and so he brings a fruit basket right and so satan always dupes us uses us in that manner and this is this is what's happening with gender and it's a huge assault on god and his but 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 i have to say it again we we can't blame the people who are caught up in this because sometimes they, they just don't know. I, Satan is taking advantage of the um, emotional uh, de deficits in people, the de disorders at some level sometimes, and, and, and our political system is taking advantage of people who need other types of help and they aren't getting it because now we want to say you're a hater. You you you're hating homosexuals. You're hating transgenders. You because you know you're not using the right pronoun or whatever. It's like well maybe they need a different type of help in the beginning, right? And but now we've politicized it. We've weaponized it almost to where it's it's the way you defeat anyone who wants to bring this up. And the whole thing is how do you talk about the lessons that God wants us to learn now when you've turned this whole political system and the whole country and the whole social system against this idea that. Maybe it was good that male and female exist, and there's purpose in it. You know, I, I, I won't go there, and I'm, I'm not criticizing the RLDS church leadership 
by saying this, but I, we can have the conversation. We should be able to have the conversation that, you know, many years ago, I don't know when it was, uh, there was a certain element within the church that decided all of a sudden the communion prayers were um, not loving because it mentioned God the Father, and there were women who were, and this was the justification I'd heard, there were women who had been abused by men, and to mention a father brings up feelings of hurt. So therefore, let's remove gender reference from the communion prayers. And and they they took that path. Now, I don't I don't agree with with doing that. Uh, I realize that some people felt like it was a compassionate thing, but in the end, we have to see maybe the bigger thing is someone gets help for this rather than we decide God's ideas were wrong. How about let's see this maybe what the what the real answer is is to take another approach and not just decide oh all these things of God we yeah. don't need them or <clears throat> we we mis we misplace our value system sometimes on the things of this world and and some of the innate gifts and talents that God gives to men and and the gifts and talents that he gives to women uh we we misplace that and what I, what I worry well not worry about but what's concerning with this you know what what Congress did is just as uh, I read the criticisms of the Book of Mormon what causes someone to add up the number of times a man is mentioned as opposed to the number of times a, a woman is mentioned and then and then say that it's favoritism see that that's a mindset exactly. of of um a certain place in society well, I, I get that society can easily twist it, and, and like the, <clears throat> they make the exact point, they're twisting it now, saying, um, you know, value should not be placed on on male or female, but that everything's equal. But we say that is true, but that doesn't mean that it's it's the same. And and if they, I just got to jump in on that. And if they understood, it, it, it's more than just searching for the word male, searching for the word female, and deciding they're not equal. The whole church is about female in, a, in the sense, or the whole scripture is about female in the sense that the church represents the female. Bride. The whole thing is about saving her, right? So right. this is all a book about saving the women, right? In the, in that sense, right? Yeah. So God is going to save the church uh, that comes to Him exactly, and and all of these men that are, you know, that are fighting battles, that are that are ruling governments, that are doing these things, wouldn't be if their mothers hadn't nurtured them when they were children. Yeah. Right. Now I get. The glory stories aren't about the mother sitting in the house with you know ten kids and one at her breast and and the house is a mess and the you know the men are out in the fields where you had to work by the spread, sweat of your brow and you couldn't just go to the store and buy a jar of mayonnaise back in the day but you know and they're fighting the battles to keep their land so that they can eat and all that oh, yeah. they're getting written about uh, and they're recording the history but the but the mothers at home nourishing the children. And having that intimate, intimate relationship with them that God desires with us as people, and that's that's carried out in that in the feminine form. Mm. You get away from that intimacy and do away with it. Uh, you lose a huge aspect of of who God is and who and how we need to rely on Him. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. You know, there's there's a danger in just doing a word search and then deciding. Well, the importance of an idea is based on how many times it occurs. I, I remember um, it was uh, actually Eldon Anderson, if, if he's listening, years ago, taught a financial class, which was amazing. And I and I remember from that, he, he started out saying money or references to money throughout the Bible appear more times than heaven and hell and even the word Jesus altogether. I mean, all through Scripture when you look at it. And I never really did that comparison, but the idea is that Money was used as a as a teaching, as a metaphor, as you know, as an object throughout time. And if, and if so, could someone come to the conclusion? Well, money is more important than heaven and hell. You know, and and that's the point. Is that well, of course not. But <laughs> but, but it, you got to do the same with male and female. When you look at the larger picture, well, it's all about the the female because it's all about the church. But we just miss the symbols. So coming back to. Uh Symbols. Here's another thing I wrote down yesterday, and my mind just started uh, thinking on this. So maybe we can. I haven't followed through on these thoughts or, or thought more about them, but maybe we can discuss this, Corey. So, if I was gonna, uh, if I was telling a story you know, ten years from now, and um, you know, maybe to my son or grandchildren, who knows? Uh, and I said, yeah, back in the you know 2020, you know, turn of the decade. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Corey Stark, and we recorded a podcast, and he taught some classes at Coburn, and, and Corey drove a Ford Fusion, 
And then uh, one day I gave him some brisket. I remember we cooked some meat for some friends, and Corey drove a Ford Fusion. And uh, <laughs> uh, and boy, he had this great computer set up. He was smart, and he wrote these programs, and he drove a Ford Fusion. And I'm, you know, what what, what that would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? And, and like, why are you putting that in there? Well, I remember it sounds familiar to me now because I've read it so many times. But when Nephi's telling the story of all of these things, and then he, about his father, and my father dwelt in a tent, and I'm just like, oh, okay, Nephi, we figure as much. You're out. In <laughs> <laughs> and then you go on later, yeah. and, and, and then these things happen. Angels shook me, and we had the ball directors, and my father dwelt in a tent. Okay, we get that, man. You know, you didn't have a – you yeah. were wandering in the wilderness. So, right. How many things weren't mentioned ten times like that? Yeah, and, and you just read it, and you thought, boy, these guys were simpletons. You know, like, okay, we get the idea. You know, in the wilderness, hard to – you had to put your tent up every night. We get it. You know, I didn't know why that was in there like that, but tell me – about the name of the father and home <laughs> in the Hebrew language just came out in your class. And I was fascinated by this because it's like, it wasn't just silly simpleton language, you know, it was there yeah. for a purpose. Yeah. So <laughs> this language of the Hebrew evolved from the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And we go through that in the class. So if you're hearing the podcast and you haven't heard the class, you can find them online now, and they'll be probably where this link is. I think there'll be links to the YouTube videos. But the man, the name for father came from, part of it was the same name for God, this ox head. And the ox was this um, the strongest animal. It was the most important animal of the day because uh, they didn't have machines back then. So if they were going to eat, they had to plow the ground and the ox did it for you. So it was a strong object of strength. And so God's name was strong authority, this ox head and the staff, the staff was the authority. The ox head was a strength. That's where God's name came from. Well, the, the name for father uses that same ox head, which was, um, that, but it used a tent door and this tent door was the home. This, um, but this, the idea came through that God was the authority of the home. That, or, I'm sorry, God was that the name Father. Let me back up. The name Father was meant the authority of the home, and they they got this through God's words uh, for His name. The when Nephi says, "My father dwelt in a tent," this reference is exactly to the way this name for father appears in the Egyptian. It was literally this father figure that was this ox head and the tent door. And when he's saying my father dwelt in the tent, in a way it's a play on words, but it was it was deeper than that too. He, he keeps bringing up the fact that the father was the authority, right? And, and in all these references, the very first time he mentions it, it's after this passage where Lehi being full of the spirit reprimands his sons for their murmuring and he does it with great authority. And that's when all of a sudden Nephi just says, and my father dwell in the tent. Well, it seems even out of place to say it. Like you said, the Ford fusion, why are you bringing that up? Well, it wasn't out of place if you're a Hebrew and, and you totally could see that the father dwelling in the tent was the exact name or the symbols for a father. And it represented his authority. Yeah, and when you, when you showed the picture of uh, so there's a difference, and and you just we get caught up in it. You just did it. There's a difference between God and the Father, and we've been talking on this. The difference. So God is this, and unfortunately, we become accustomed. I think, at least I do in my mind, when I hear God, I think of the Father in heaven. When I hear Jesus, I think of this man on earth. But when we see the word God, I always seem to attribute that right to the Father in heaven. But it's it's two separate concepts. It's two separate uh, words. God, you said, was El and Adonai, right? Yeah, well, that was part of it. The L was right, like this this strong authority. Right, okay. right, right. Okay. But it could be Adonai. It could be Elohim. It could be a lot of different ones. They would always add this L to it, which meant God in his mercy or God in his justice or okay. God in his power, right? Or God, okay. the leader of the armies. Right, right. So so the father word for God has this picture of a, it looks like a square going in. It looks like a, well, a tent. Like yeah. It's the picture for a tent. So, uh, and that represented the home, the home, and, the home. Right. That's what, that's what I wanted to bring out the home. Right. So father has part of that original meaning concept is home. See, I love 
I love going to origins because when I read words like faith and trust, I'm like, but what did it, how did it impact the people when they heard it? Because I think of it differently. And this is awesome that father was was equated to home. Yeah, yeah. And but, and see, the, the, the beauty of all this, how it all ties back in and it ties the gender in is that when they when you just started with that word God, which meant strong authority, the ox head and the staff meant strong authority. Well, you find the word for the male father, when they saw those hieroglyphs together, they interpreted that as the authority of the home. The authority of the home would be father. Right. But when they saw the groupings of the ox head and the wavy water, which was the strong water, which you got to connect the dots here, but the Hebrews understood it. This is where translators would fall down. The, The woman's the connotation for the woman's name was the strength of the home. So you have the father, the authority of the home. You have the woman, the strength of the home. But when you look at part of their names together, come back to strong authority, that's God. And so this is male and female made he them. It's like his attributes were the strong authority or the mighty one. He gives authority and he gives strength. And he's like dividing them up by their names into the people. It's just beautiful. And that's why, yeah. It's amazing how many times you hear something. I was listening uh, just briefly this morning to the recording of the class. I'm like, he said that? I mean, it's amazing how many times you hear things and it goes past you. And so revisiting these things, especially myself, I'm not used to thinking this way, is I think is important. So father is the authority of the home. Woman was the strength of the home. Right. And a strong authority is God. God. Exactly. And see how that triangle works then? Yeah. You know, it's like the male and female created he them. And it's like his own attributes went into us. And he's like, <laughs> okay, these are these are the roles you play now. But it all comes back from the one God who has right. all these qualities. And and this is an important thing. And I know we mentioned it in class, but I want to say it just for the sake of the podcast. We have to realize that when the... When the Hebrews talked about Elohim, that has been misinterpreted. And in fact, our, our friends in Utah, again, I'm sorry to bring this up again, uh, is that, you know, there were one of the ideas that Brigham Young espoused was that there were many gods. And that's only because they misinterpreted the Hebrew meaning for Elohim, right. which was plural. It, it wasn't talking about many gods in quantity. It was talking about God has many qualities. That's mm-hmm. how the Hebrews understood it. The Bible Project has an interesting uh, video on Elohim and on studying that, and they've come to some interesting um, conclusions as well. And I, I just I throw that out there. Anybody wants to search that out. But um, they realized also that the word also... Um, was attributed to not just God the Father, but also heavenly uh, beings was another way that that plural was uh, was attributed to. Um, so it was interesting, but um, but one God, one one Father, one Father, and they use plural to to say how mighty He is, or to add additional meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the best podcaster in the world would be Corey's. Corey's. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, when you get this, uh, yeah. The, well, you know, the this brings up something that I don't understand because I, I wish I could read the Hebrew and understand it, but they have different words that and different meanings that just don't translate into English at all. And every language does that to some extent, you know. But this um, idea that we would say, you know, okay, there's three books you know, in front of me, but they, you could in Hebrew say there's one books if you're talking about the quality of books. And it's like, it, our mind doesn't think that way. We're not programmed that way. Uh, just to throw out a couple other things, just because I've read about them, but I don't understand them because our language doesn't work this way in English. They use a different form of past tense, for instance. And in in, if I say I, I walked home from school well, if it's something that you did in the past, but it's something you would do many times, like walking home from school is something I do more than once in my life, there is a certain word for walked. But if if I was walking, <laughs> what's what's one? If I was um, walking to my father's funeral, for instance, I'm only going to go to the funeral once. It was a different word for walked. It was a different tense. Okay, gotcha. And so if it was because it was something you only did one time versus something you do many times. Now we would just use the word walked in every every case, but the Hebrews would use a different contraction, or they would you know they would modify the word 
to imply, okay, this is something I'm going to do again or not. Versus a routine. Right. Like, this is something I, I, do, I do as regularly. part of my regular day. Right. And right. so the words change to reflect that. We don't do that in English. You know, we just take the context and figure it out. Well, what happens is, um, so there's this new phrase search on the Restore Gospel, and uh, there's a little video on how to use it. The reason that came up is because I've learned through reading some of these things on Hebrew that these pronouns, for instance, um, like his and hers, if, if you do a word search on his, I can tell you right now, just the word his, it's going to come up with 1,500 different searches, and you just see all these words jumbled together, and you're never going to be able to see the forest for the trees for all these words. Well, if you go to the phrase search, it'll show every instance of the word his with one word after it or two words or three words. And then you can see a clean list. Well, I did that because I started realizing some of these words in the Hebrew that are common in English reflect those tenses. And, and here's the one, and I'll tell you, the word did, okay? Did means, hey, I did this, I, I did this, but it's a past tense. The Those Hebrew words that were, I walked home from school or I walked to my father's funeral, even though they're same in our language, we have to modify the English to reflect the same meaning. So in, in, in the Hebrew, the words that exist that don't exist in English, in English would be um, filled in with the words like did. And there's a phrase, did cause. If, if you go search the word did, you're going to see a zillion instances. But with this phrase search now, you could say did cause, and you'll see uh, he did cause to do this. Well, did cause isn't a a way we'd say really anything in English. If I if I say he did, I did cause Mike to go to the store. I, it would just be easier for me to say, "Hey, I caused, I, I caused, Mike. I caused a right. wreck on the highway." Right. I right. did cause a wreck. Right. Right. But where you see the instance of "did cause" is in what I'm finding. It doesn't occur in the Bible anywhere. You can't find those words, but you find them all through the Book of Mormon. And when you go to Hebrew language, um, like the little primers online here, you want to learn Hebrew? Well, you find that they'll have these words, and they say, this is how you have to say it in English, and it'll say such and such did cause. Well, because that's the only way to get an English equivalent. And and the reason I'm bringing this up is because you can search through the Book of Mormon, and words that sound funny, phrases together— um, they're they're doing that very thing. They're making the best use of English words where the where the Hebrew doesn't exist in English, and that's just one example of that. That like a did cause. So I, you, the phrase search is easy to sort those things out now. That's neat, and, and always a reminder. This the you know these words were transcribed on plates, went in the ground, came out and translated once, and God had a purpose and meaning for for how that translation came, and it's been pretty pristine. Although even in less than two hundred years. There's been some huge changes to that language, although you know maybe not a ton of them. But the ones that are changed had huge implications, and, and you, we'll talk about that later. But uh, just in how we see God and, and things like oh, that, yeah. so uh, it is important the language that it that it be maintained and held on to as as much as God uh, wants us to see. Well, that's where the most learning will come from. And I, let me say one thing to that really quickly, like. You know, there was an original manuscript, and it was kind of edited and cleaned up for various reasons. The printer's manuscript, um, you know, when it went to the printer, it had no punctuation, really, and and there's a reason for that, too. But the printer, who's an English guy, goes in, and he starts printing and and separating things into chapters and verses according to his knowledge, but doesn't change the words a lot. We find that after 1908, a committee of people changed some words, and um, I'm not going to comment on that too much other than to say, hey, where it said, and Mary, you know, Mary was the mother of God, well, they inserted son of God because they thought, oh, that must not have been right. Well, when you get to 1966, the RLDS church, uh, someone was commissioned to go through and just make the whole Book of Mormon more readable because their assumption was all these did cause and stuff like that was just bad grammar. No, it was perfect Hebrew translation. So if you have a 1966 edition, yeah, you'll get the synopsis of the Book of Mormon, but the authenticity of the language translation is totally removed. And people didn't realize that. In fact, I never met the person who did it, but I heard later it a woman who kind of headed this up, she really lamented because she felt like later I, I lost some of this essence, not even knowing at the time that she and, and the team of people who did this were um, were removing truth that 
God used as the second witness of its authenticity from it. And so that 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 Book of Mormon never became the church's official publication, although there were many people that actually thought it was going to be. The, the church bet on the fact that people were going to adopt this, and they bet wrongly. There was a batch of Book of Mormons that were printed out in 1966, and a friend of mine showed this to me because he had one of these Book of Mormons, that they they pre-printed some for the conference that year because they thought, oh, people will adopt this resolution to make the 1966 the official Book of Mormon of the church. And the the body of the conference voted it down. Well, the church, thinking they were going to accept this, and they wanted to keep the 1908 version and said, but the 1908 is inferior to the RCE. I, if anyone buys the Book of Mormon, I tell them, get the RCE anymore. You're not you're not disowning God by doing it. No, the, the, the better language and the essence of God comes forth in the RCE, which is important for us to see. But, but the 1966 was never adopted by the world church, and there are many printed out there, but um, it totally removes all these beautiful aspects of the Hebrew. Yeah. Well, so, Corey, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're coming up on time. I want to wrap this up because I want to say— It's a bonus episode. Yeah. Can't we just go a little longer? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Why does this matter? I, I'm sitting here thinking about this. It's like, you know, as I as I get in my car and I go to work and I interact with my family and—, I, and uh, uh, you know, we go about our routines. Why does it matter that there's a Hebrew letter that looks like a tent, you know, and that God is in his home and the Father? And I would say, like, on the surface, not, you know, this doesn't affect, like, if I love my neighbor. It doesn't affect, um, you know, am I, how's my prayer life, you know, yeah. it, on the surface. But as our, we had a great sermon yesterday at Colburn about, um, guarding your heart and ordering your life on in your everyday activities on how you can guard your heart and maintain a deeper relationship with God and and that is where this these things I think matter as we continually come to him and learn more about him and he, you realize that he reveals himself as as uh, in a picture of uh these breasts that give nourishment and you're like that's you know, as a child, as I get nourishment from my mom, that's what God is wanting to supply to me now in my spiritual life. And see, level upon level, and it just draws you in until it's all-encompassing. And and that's where I think these things matter for those that want to continually come to God as he is and understand how he's revealing himself to us. We come into greater relationship with him, and we begin to understand these I, I always hate when people say, uh, you know, you got to keep the commandments and get to heaven. Because to me, that's just like, ah, yeah, right, but, right. but it's like, we do have to keep those commands, but we have to understand how they apply to us in our everyday interaction and going about this temporary state that we're in separated from him. So right. I think these under, these, these matter, um, they matter as we put effort into our relationship with God, they become more and more important. But if you step way back on the surface, it's like this is just a bunch of nerdy, brainy stuff. But the other thing I think it matters is as we see the legitimacy of the book, that we really, um, it adds to our faith. And maybe those people that are on the borderline or have heard criticism say, there's no way this is not a work of God, that we then are opened up to the message. And I know that's what you're, you're going to be speaking about is the message on how to come to him and be saved that's contained in the Book of Mormon. Mm. Um, but this adds validity, legitimacy, but it also allows us to come into deeper uh, fellowship with him, right, I believe. Right. Uh, you're you're 100% right. Some people could just see it as, oh, this is kind of this heady pursuit of, you know, of theological nerdism and it doesn't really mean anything because I already know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I already know I'm supposed to be kind and I, my heart is changing. It's like, exactly. That's the point. Um, when I was in college, I, I studied science and chemistry and then went on into engineering. But my, I, I can remember how science solidified my faith because as I would learn about these molecules and how they would 
orbit and air, the atoms and the electrons and all these things and how they interact and how all these forces worked. And then when I would go to physics class and see how all this stuff worked in the universe and, and see all these commonalities, it just made me think, gosh, you can go down and drill down with a microscope and you can find God working in there and you can take a telescope and see the universe and you can see God working there. And at all levels, I could see him. And, it, and science for some people makes people doubt God. Science made me love God because I could see this stuff at any level. And the for me, I guess, maybe it's just me, but in this pursuit of looking at these words, I I firstly, I just find it makes me more in awe of God because of what he did. And it's like, do we have to see these things? Do we have to know these things to know God? Of course not. We don't. But to me, it just, it, it, it humbles me and it can, and it assures me that everything that he said is more than true. And I mean, I'm, I'm like, obviously sounding like a doubter. I, I don't doubt God, but it just, it, it edifies when I see these things. Now, what I'm not wanting to do in this series is just teach a class to edify saints. Hey, don't worry, the Book of Mormon is true. But it does do that. What I really look forward to someday is by discovering these things for me, and I'm saying discover for me personally, I'm not discovering them for church. The, a lot of these things have been talked about for 40 years, the Book of Mormon uh, parallelisms and things. People in the LDS church were doing a great job uh, discovering these things in the 1960s and 70s and writing about them. You know, it's been around for a while, not maybe widely known, but what I hope is that someday it can give us the ability to hand this book back without the Gentile baggage that goes with it. And by that, I mean, without all of our shortcomings and with all of our mistakes of polygamy and all these other things, and just hand the word back to Israelites and say, this is your book, we found it, and then have them, the people who understand the language and understood the culture, I want to learn from them. I want them to read the book. I want them to tell me, these nuances of the Savior that they have known all along, but they didn't have the book. And we've been holding it or putting it on our shelf for all these years. And and I want to learn from them. So um, right now, when I like it, One for Israel, I, I love their website because it's passionate Jewish Christians, Messianic, we could use that word, I guess, but they're people who live in Israel who have found Christ and they're wanting to tell the world about it. But when I when I go to their website, I sometimes, and I don't say this in criticism, sometimes I feel like when I'm hearing their testimony, it just sounds like I'm on like a campus crusade for Christ here in America where it's, hey, evangelicals who are, and I'm using that term in a good good way, you know, people who are wanting to witness for Christ, tell the world about Christ, but I feel like they're just doing it with Hebrew accents. In other words, they learned from the Gentiles a little about Christ, and right. now they're telling the story that we told them, and it's like, I want them to have this book and then tell us about Christ through it from their understanding of where, where he came from, his culture, and everything. And so, anyhow, <clears throat> I... Well, thankfully, most of the a lot of the Gentiles nowadays, I think, are more on track than a lot of other things as far as uh, Christ and focusing on him. But I think back to the Reformation, how it laid the foundation for, uh, you know, these tent revivals and all that. If Joseph hadn't seen all these things going on in this fervency for uh, this re rebirth of uh, against the Catholic Church and the Reformation coming forth, then, you know, he wouldn't have been seeking and learning and saying, which one is right, God? And so exactly. uh, hopefully this leads to a uh, at least a coming to Christ and then uh, opening the door for further yeah, yeah. Truth. Well, you know, one of the beauties of the Book of Mormon is that this, um, the book even tells us, hey, um, there's more to come forth, and I'm going to try the faith of the Gentiles with this. I'm going to teach them. And I think largely we have put this book aside. One of the one of the reasons why I think studying some of this nuance of the language is important is when we see this bear witness that you can look now at Hebrew definitions of word like the darkness you could feel, or the word for mercy is actually defined as being wrapped in the arms for protection. And then you find that phrase throughout the Book of Mormon. It doesn't appear anywhere in any version of the Bible, but you get this idea that that word is verified at the minute, like at the microscopic level. When you read that, then when you read the greater themes, which aren't enshrouded in any kind of Hebrewism, when you hear that, God took on flesh and therefore he is called the son. Shouldn't I trust in that too? Now, shouldn't I believe these plain and precious messages that the Book of Mormon came to tell us? And this is where it's an uphill battle in our culture because we've been 
kind of we've been surrounded by different ideas sometimes of men and different ideas that come from scripture. And sometimes in our heads, we don't always know, did that idea really come from scripture or did it come from maybe not a good interpretation of scripture? Which one is the right? And and now I'm realizing, you know what we were supposed to do? And this is why I started class out this way yesterday without really expanding on it. We were given this book so we wouldn't stumble. I think this needs to be a go-to for us in all cases, to try to settle doctrine so that we can understand, hey, what's, were these words like, for instance, we talked about this where some people who love Jesus and believe in everything in the Bible get hung up on this idea of predestination because of a single verse or two that may be taken out of context or maybe weren't translated properly from the Hebrew idea. Right. And then they build this whole doctrine that, well, only a few of us are going to be saved. Right? right. You know, so... When we come up against that kind of stuff, we can come back to the Book of Mormon, and because we can trust it on the microscopic level, then right. we should be able to trust it where it says all I, are coming. I would that all men would be saved. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Male, female, bond-free, whatever. And and so that we can come back to those ideas. That's why I love finding this truth on the, on the minutia level, because then we can also understand and believe wholeheartedly it's true on the large level. Well, hey, I had I had one other thought yesterday, and we're— yeah, but, Hey, I went over on class. I even apologized <laughs> to the pastor yesterday, and so we've made up. All right. Well, I got an appointment. We, we can go 50, over. I oh. got fifty. I got about ten minutes left. Okay. I got an appointment. Hey, um, the the father and the tent meaning home. Yeah. I was thinking yesterday, um, just because the Book of Mormon is so clear that God is one, and yet uh, manifested in 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 different ways, three different main ways. I was thinking the father. In heaven, that that is our home. That is, we talk about our home. That's he presides over that home. And Jesus came down to earth, and it says the Father took on flesh and blood. And in in the scriptures, you know, he left his home in the heavens and oh. came down to earth uh, in the form of flesh and blood. And that's why he's called the Son of Man. And that was Jesus. But but residing in. Um, does, I don't know if there's a connection, but as as we look at God, the Father, He remains in heaven. He remains in the home, our home that we're supposed to come back to. Is that am I am I overthinking it, or does that? I don't know all of the. <laughs> I, you know, that's a fascinating question, and in a sense, I I don't know the specific answer to that. I guess that's something we we should uh, bat back and forth at some point. But I do know this: this whole idea of heaven and earth being one in the mind of Hebrews and this male and female, female aspect of it. But the fact that this whole idea is that God's kingdom comes to earth and that becomes one, right? God's kingdom with the church or, or God, God with the church and the kingdom is born out of it. That's like the child that results from the marriage. And see, when God comes back, he makes earth his abode, but it's a brand new heaven and earth again. And so I don't Maybe know. because the father present on the earth? I don't, I, don't, I haven't yeah. followed that all the way through. I'm yeah, sure it all yeah. adds up at some point. No, but. that that's exactly what it is. You know, when, when uh, that's going to take another podcast, but I will be excited if we have that conversation. I just simply thought when you said father intent, the authority of the home, that, yeah. that, that the father remained over the authority of yeah. heaven, of, of everything, of our home. Definitely. But definitely. yet took on flesh and blood and stepped into time on the earth. So yeah. I, and, and, and in the end, it all, the whole idea is that, yeah, God's in heaven right now and we're on earth right now and separated. But then the two come together and whether you call it earth becomes like heaven or heaven becomes like earth, they're, they're joined back together, mm -hmm. right? You know, in yeah. the end. Yeah. And well, he's the authority of it all, right? We talked about since class is limited to time at Colburn and even shortened a little, we're still on some COVID things, um, that people could uh, write down questions during class and email them to us, Restore Gospel Podcast at Gmail. You could write them on a piece of paper and hand them to Corey after class. Uh, you're talking about maybe putting an interactive thing on RestoreGospel.com where people could just text it in or, or type it in and it would be there. Right. Um, but it. In any case, we hope to continue to uh, 
have an after class uh, regroup or, or rehashing and going over some things that maybe we don't touch on and just an additional supplement yeah. uh, here on the podcast as a bonus, not, not, not to replace our weekly series, but I appreciate that, Mike. I, I, that's, it's really nice of you to do this. Mike spends a lot of time that you guys don't see putting podcasts together and editing and getting it all. Well, published. not <laughs> you're uh, so, Hey, I was just going to ask, where can people find the uh, the videos? Of yeah, us now? so just just uh, you go to YouTube on any browser and type in Restored Gospel Podcast on the search bar, or you can go to Coburn Road's website where um, the Ministries tab, there is classes and all of uh, the audio and links to the videos are there. And then in this podcast right now you're listening to, I'll put a link in the show notes for the YouTube channel where you can go and watch the last two presentations. Also, Corey is putting up uh, last year's class, The Final Prophecy, and attaching the video PowerPoint to it where you can watch and listen to those again, but also see uh, the graphics. And so... Uh, just a bunch of tools there, you know, maybe using your homeschooling and, and teaching classes, but they're just there to bring us closer to to our Lord. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I did add on the Restored Gospel website, there's a tab across the top menu bar that says classes. And if you click on that, you'll find the same thing. I found out, you know, in some people would prefer not to use some channels for whatever on the internet. You can watch the videos and hear the classes there now too, just at Restore Gospel. Yeah. Yeah. RestoreGospel.com. Um, I was going to say, I don't remember what I was going to say. Oh, if you go to YouTube, if you do watch it on YouTube, if you just take time to hit subscribe, if we get a hundred subscribers, it helps out. It just helps getting the message out. I won't get into all the details, but you get a little, extra boost i think so that's the first goal is just to get 100 subscribers um and not not for to pat ourselves on the back of our own popularity but just as a vehicle to get the message out while we still can and while speech is somewhat still free so Amen. all right buddy thanks for putting in yet another hour of your time or so to uh Oh, man, this is good. This is what I want to do. So, no, thank you, Mike. appreciate this chance. And, yeah, I look forward to having more uh, wrap-ups uh, sessions in the future when we can. All right. Well, let's uh, cue the music. And uh, <laughs> and just remember, uh, through all this, we're all just here walking each other home. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>